Gracious Father in heaven, tonight, once again, we are just recognizing that every breath that we take is a gift from you. The fact that we're here tonight, the fact that, that you've led our steps in this direction, that we are even, that we have the capacity to open up the Bible and seek to know you more is a blessing. And so, Lord, I, I thank you. You know, each one that's here could be in many other different places tonight, but you have led us here. And so we want to be confident that you've led us here for a reason, that you've brought us here for a purpose, and we just give you permission right now to fulfill that purpose. I know that some of us are carrying heavy burdens, just being able to read through some of the, the prayer requests that were shared last night on the response cards. God, you know every one of these needs, these struggles, and the heartache that we are wanting to, like the Bible says, to cast all of our cares upon you, because you care for us. Lord, I pray that if any of us is uncertain of that care from heaven toward us, that you would give us just a, a gift of faith tonight to receive that assurance. So Lord, as we're opening up scripture, please don't let this just be an intellectual exercise. Obviously quicken our minds, but really give us spiritual understanding. That's what we're praying for tonight. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right. Let's take our handout. Uh, handout number two should be in your hands here. And uh, we're just going to start off here. Actually, you know, before, let, let, me, <laughs> let me just pause here. So last night, Donnie, thank you so much for reviewing last night's presentation for us. Last night, uh, you know, we discovered that the Bible and the God of the Bible can be trusted. Praise the Lord for that. All right. Um, and and that, that when he gives us prophetic revelation, like we just talked about, he's actually not just giving us information, he's extending a friendship to us. He's extending an opportunity to get to know him, to get to seek him. And I would say this, to get to trust him. Now, that, that word itself is a pretty heavy word when you're talking about trust, right? Um, I remember uh, one of my... Yeah, it, Several years ago, uh, I had a chance to study the Bible with a, a young adult whose basic question is, I have trust issues. How can I possibly trust God if I have difficulty trusting my father? You know, if I have difficulty trusting uh, uh, my, my, my spouse, you know, th these things. And so when we're talking about this idea of God extending an invitation to know him and to trust him, oh, that, that's a powerful invitation, except... How do you trust somebody if you aren't quite sure of their good intent towards you? You follow what I'm saying? How, do, how, do, how can I trust God? Because that can be difficult if I don't quite know whether or not he has my best interest in mind. And when we look at the world that we're living in, you know, the existence of pain and suffering and how, how that is really, sadly, the norm of things, it really causes many of us, and maybe, maybe many of us here in this room, we've, we've wondered, can I truly trust God? And so this question, why so much pain and suffering, it's a trust question. It needs to be answered, and I'm wondering tonight, does the Bible have anything to help us with that? And I am convinced the answer is yes. The answer is yes, all right? So let's take a look. You've got your handout. The opening paragraph, let's read this here. It says this, Though it may sound like a contradiction of terms, the Bible speaks of a what are the next three words right there? A war in heaven. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word heaven, I think of 
bright lights, clouds, you know, maybe playing a harp. Or, no, I don't, I don't know about that. But, you know, I think of happy-go-lucky things, but when it says in Revelation 12, verse 7, that's the reference right there, war in heaven, that just, that's kind of jarring, right? While every war carries significant weight and grave consequences, this cosmic conflict has directly impacted the entire course of Earth's history. All right, this is the war behind all wars. The struggle between good and evil that forms the backdrop to the life of tension and pain we all deal with. Many have rightfully wondered how can an all-powerful and all-loving God possibly allow the kind of suffering and strife that we witness in the world today? How many of us have ever asked that question ourselves? Yeah. Tonight, we will discover how the war in heaven, described in Bible prophecy, enables us to make sense of two things. Or, sorry, it enables us to do two things. One, it enables us to make sense of suffering. And two, it empowers us to find hope through it all, too. How many of you are interested in finding that hope tonight? Yeah? All right, all right. So let's go, let's open up our Bibles actually to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you're using the Blue Seminar Bible, I believe it's on page 6, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and when you're there, go ahead and say, I beat you. I beat you. Oh, man, these pages are thin. Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. All right. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, this is the very beginning. Now, when you read Genesis chapter 1 through, um, it's, it's actually very poetic. Uh, especially when you read it in the original Hebrew that it was written in, it sounds like a, like a song, a rhythmic uh, a poem. It's really a piece of art. And so uh, it's, it's got stanzas, it's got a repeated refrain, and so I'm just going to kind of hit on several of the things here. I'll, I'll read from the very beginning here. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Oh, man. I mean, just, just imagining this, letting the movie kind of play out in your mind, it's really, really inspiring. In fact, I think it was 1968. I might have my year wrong, but the Apollo 8 mission. Do you remember this? Does anybody remember this? The Apollo 8 mission. It was Christmas Eve, and the Apollo 8 astronauts they had the chance to live broadcast to a, a captive audience what, what they were seeing, and they saw a lunar sunrise. <laughs> and they could see the Earth just kind of off in the horizon, just above uh, the lunar horizon. It, it, was, it was an awesome opportunity. And the astronauts knew. Uh, they knew that they had a chance to live broadcast, and they weren't given a script. They said they were just told, uh, say something important, or say, say something nice, you know? And they really struggled with this. And, and what they said was actually what they read, what we just read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, this, this is, these are momentous words here. This is how it all began. And then in verse 3, then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Go down to verse 10. Now again, we're just going to kind of hit on some things and listen for that repeated refrain. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was 
Good. How about verse 12? And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that, that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was... Good. Hey, I think you're picking up on the chorus here, right? <laughs> Verses 16 to 18, how about this? Okay, so, I mean, again, this, this is really structured. I, I don't want to get bogged down in this because this is our first slide and there's, you know, 20-something of them. But here we go. Verse 16, Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so that's the end of the fourth day. Let's keep going. Verse 21, So God created sea creatures. This is day five now. And every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Verse 28, then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then getting down to the end of day six, verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Oh, oh so, so the chorus kind of switched up a little bit. It's good, it's good, and now it's very good. I'm telling you, like a master artist stepping back to appreciate every phase of his handiwork. God is just kind of stepping back. Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, that, that's good. That is very good. At every phase of this, God is affirming the value of creation. At every phase of the process, what, what God called good and very good has caught the attention of you know, every one of us. I mean, we're, we're driving through the mountains and we, I don't know, when I first moved here to Colorado, so I grew up in the Central Valley of California, where sunrises are strange colors because of the air quality <laughs> in Central California. Okay, you've got pinks and purples and all sorts of things, and it's beautiful. And I grew up in the Central Valley, and I never knew that there were really hills and mountains until, you know, until a nice downpour, okay? And so when I moved out here to Colorado, like, uh, driving up and down I-25, I just, I just could not avoid, those are the mountains! The Rockies are beautiful. The sky is so big. I remember going to one playground there in Castle Rock, and I just, I just laid down on the, the ground. This sky is so blue. <laughs> this is good. This is good. In our hearts, we really appreciate the beauty of, of what surrounds us naturally, right? And it doesn't just catch our attention. It catches the attention of scientists as well. Modern science, actually, this, this gentleman, Michael Turner, from the University of Chicago, you know, he, he's a physicist. And the things that he notices about nature are, well, he, he describes it in this way. He says, the precision is as if one could throw a dart across the entire universe and hit a bullseye one millimeter in diameter on the other side. He's looking at the way life is set up. And it's not just a mere accident. He sees design. He sees symmetry. He sees things just right. He calls that precision. 
Actually, scientists, they, they talk about this, this idea of the fine-tuning of the universe. That is that there are conditions that allow life in the universe and that, that only occur when certain universal, fundamental, physical constants are in place. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are nodding your heads. Yeah, this is, you're probably well, more, more well-versed in this than I am. You think about the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the mass of an electron, the mass of a proton, all of these things. If they weren't just so, life would not be possible. Okay? We really live uh, in this small margin of error. And, and Michael Turner says, it's like throwing a dart all the way across and hitting a bullseye just one millimeter wide. In fact, if any of these were off in the slightest, life would not be possible. For example, here's just one example. Roger Penrose wrote this. And when he's describing the, the likelihood of the universe even having usable energy in the first place, he says that the, the likelihood, the chances are one part, I'm sorry, one part out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. What? <laughs> one could not even write the number down in full. Well, let's try it, okay? <laughs> one, in, one in 10. Okay, we know that. That, that's, that means that, okay, uh, let's draw up 10 different scenarios of the universe. One of those scenarios would have usable energy. Well, 1 in 10 to the power of 10, that's, uh, that's what? How many? Well, that's 1 with 10 zeros behind it. That's 10 billion, I think. Did I get that right? 1 in 10. But he's saying it's 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. That's ridiculous. You couldn't write that many zeros down is what he's saying. This universe that God created is not just good. It is very good. Amen? This is a very, very good world. The odds are incredible. And that's what we're, what we're looking at today. Actually, let's go ahead and fill this in in our handout. Consider the following verses. We have already looked at them. If you haven't written that down already, as God assessed his creation, he saw that it was good. Very good, right? It is significant to note that the story of Scripture begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with this picture of perfection. A perfect world created for perfect humanity in perfect communion with a perfect God. Before the entrance of sin, there was no sign of pain, suffering, or death. What then happened to produce the current state in which we live where pain and suffering is the norm? There it is, Genesis 1 and 2. It's good, it's good, it's very good. I mean, it's so precise, there could, life wouldn't be possible if it were any different. But if God created it so good, then why do we experience all of what we experience? Why is pain and suffering the norm? And the question there in your handout is, did God goof? Did he mess up somewhere? Let's take a look at a New Testament passage together, Matthew chapter 13. Let's go ahead and find that. Matthew chapter 13, it's the very first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 13, and I believe in your seminar Bible, that's page 1268. Page 1268. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is telling a series of parables. Okay? He's telling stories that have some sort of moral or object lesson to them, using, these things, to using things from everyday life to illustrate some spiritual dynamics. And in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, he introduces us to a parable that is known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 24. The Bible says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed what kind of seed in his field? Good seed. Okay. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. All right? Not so good stuff. We, uh, weeds, you could say. Right? Sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? All right, this is exactly the question that we're asking. God, didn't you create a good world? How then does it have evil? How then does it have pricks and thorns and pain and suffering, right? And so this is what the question uh, arises. And in verse uh, 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until when? Until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Very interesting parable, right? Jesus is telling us uh, that, that really, uh, actually, okay, let, let's get down to the explanation. He gives it very plainly, uh, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, oh, okay, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. All right, so now he's got a private audience here. The disciples are talking. Can you please explain this? Verse 37, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is who? The son of man, all right? That's a reference to himself. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, I was the one who created the world. I was the one who made this place good. And then in verse 38, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. And then here it is. The enemy who sowed them is who? The devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers, those who are trying to help the farmer along, the reapers are who? The angels, really interesting. So when you import those, uh, you, you know, you kind of take that as a key, you know, the, the, the answer key into the, into the parable. You're like, okay, wait, so in this parable, Jesus sows, he creates a good world, but there are weeds that crop up and angels are asking, where did this come from? You realize that even the angels were kind of wondering, how in the world did this happen? And the explanation that the farmer gives, you remember, an enemy has done this. And who was that enemy, according to what we just read? The devil. Okay, so let's just highlight a few of these main points here in your handout. The sower sows only good seed. Okay, the sower sows only good seed. Secondly, the servants ask where the tares came from. Like, where did all of this that's not so good come from? And then thirdly, the sower responds that an enemy is responsible. An enemy is responsible. And what we found, according to Jesus' explanation here, is that this enemy is called the devil. The devil. So who is this? And where did he come from, right? I mean, Jesus actually kind of emphasizes this idea in Luke chapter 13. So you're in Matthew. Let's go, let's go to a passage in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Just two books to your right. So Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. 
Luke chapter 13, I believe this is page 1354 in your seminar Bible. Luke chapter 13. When you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. Okay, man, you guys are on it tonight. All right, here it is. Luke chapter 13. Verse, I'm sorry, did I say 13? Yeah, okay. Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 16. This is a really interesting story where Jesus, he shows up at a Jewish synagogue and he notices that there is someone there who is physically afflicted. She is actually bent over. And I believe, according to this story, she's been this way for 18 years, according to verse 11, right? And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. That is terrible. I don't know about how many of us in this room suffer from chronic back pain. That's no fun. That is no fun. And she could not even raise herself up. What's beautiful about this is that Jesus takes the opportunity to free her of that affliction. Amen. He makes her whole. What's sad about this is that there are people in the synagogue that day that aren't so rejoiceful. Okay? They're, they're like, whoa, there are six days in the week to do this. Why do this on the seventh, which was called the Bible Sabbath? And they're just really upset about, hey, you, you totally ruined our worship service here. <laughs> okay? Now, Jesus kind of sets them straight. <laughs> he says this in verse 15. The Lord then answered and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? In other words, hey, you guys take care of your beasts of burden. You take care of your animals on this day of rest. Can I not make this person whole? In verse 16, notice how he says this, though. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. First of all, Jesus is awesome, okay? His heart is for us. He wants to make us whole. But what I wanted to, to draw our attention to here is that Jesus draws a connection between the woman's physical affliction and being bound by Satan. In other words, he says that this woman's suffering is actually the result of Satan's doing. Okay, this is, this is exactly what we're seeing in the parable of the tares. Hey, an enemy has done this. And that enemy was representative of the devil. And so the question that we've got to ask is, where then did this devil come from? Where did Satan originate? Uh, we've got, actually, let's, let's, turn to, let's turn to the second page of our handout. This war in heaven, we've already kind of referenced it. But in Luke chapter 10, we're, we're already in the Gospel of Luke. Let's go ahead over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Actually, I have it on the screen. I just I printed it wrong. Luke chapter 10, verse 18, not 18, verse 10. And the Bible says this. Jesus, talking to the disciples, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from where? From heaven. Very interesting. All right, how about another passage? Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. We already referenced this at the beginning, but I want us to see this for ourselves. The book of Revelation, very last book of the Bible. If you get to some of that extra study material towards the end, you've gone too far. Revelation 12, this is page 1675. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. Verses 7 through 9. Revelation 12 gives us a similar portrait of Satan's origin. When you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. I'm there. Awesome. 
Revelation 12. Now, I'll say this about Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is kind of the crux of the entire book of Revelation. Okay? When you're studying through Revelation, there are certain patterns, there are certain cycles, sevens kind of repeat throughout Revelation. There are certain themes that really draw the book of Revelation into a united whole. Revelation 12 happens to be the very centerpiece of it. And if you want to understand Revelation 12 in its entirety, you're going to have to keep coming to the seminar. All right? So what, what we're going to do, though, is look at verses 7 through 9. Again, where did Satan come from? According to verse 7, the Bible says this, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Hey, this is the original Star Wars, okay? We've got Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels. Now, when you're reading through the book of Revelation, Revelation is, is very full of symbols, okay? These symbols, these ideas, these images are actually portraying deeper spiritual realities. So we've got We've got Michael and his angels fighting with the dragon, and the, the dragon is in his angels fought. According to verse 8, the Bible says, But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called who? The devil and Satan. So when you're looking at Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, and you say, oh, there's a dragon, what does this dragon signify or symbolize? We don't have to like just kind of conjecture. We don't have to kind of use our best guess and imagination. We just look later on in the chapter and it's, oh, the dragon is the devil. It's Satan, okay? Uh, let, let's actually finish the rest of the verse. Called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So if you've got your handout, let's write this down. Satan's native hometown is heaven, of all places. Satan's native hometown is heaven. So then you've got to ask this question. Well, does that mean that God created the devil? Did God create the devil? Uh, it's a really good question, and I think the Bible has a good answer. Let's go to Ezekiel. We're using our Bibles a little more tonight than we did last night. I hope that's okay. Just trying to warm up our fingers and familiarity with the Bible. Ezekiel is um, a little bit more than halfway through the Bible. I think we have a page number here, 1077. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Taking a look at verses 12 to 15. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 15. When you're there, go ahead and say amen. Amen. All right. Now, in this chapter, Ezekiel the prophet is actually declaring a lamentation. It's almost a, a crying song. You could say a country song. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a sad song about a king who has really rebelled against God's wishes. However, as this song progresses, and we'll look at another one in Isaiah, as this song progresses, you can tell that this song isn't just about a mere mortal. All right? Notice with me in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is more than just a man that he's talking about. You were in Eden, the garden of God, 
Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed, what's the next word in your Bible? Cherub. We're talking about an angel. A designated, an anointed, a chosen angel who covers, according to verse 14. You are the anointed cherub who covers, almost like the bodyguard of God. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till, what's the next word? Iniquity. That's another word for sin, the inward dynamics of sin. Till iniquity was found in you. This was a perfect angel who was the seal of perfection according to verse 12. In other words, uh, this angel was kind of like the template for all the other angels. You can tell now why God is singing a crying song. This perfect angel was created to, to, to be like the model angel until iniquity was found in him. Until iniquity was found in him. And so, there, according, if we're going to answer this question, did God create the devil? The answer is no. God created a perfect angel. Go ahead and write that down. God created a perfect angel with the power to choose whether to love God or not. God did not intend for this angel to become what was later known as the devil or Satan. God created him perfect, the seal of perfection, but allowed these created beings, these heavenly intelligences, the power to choose whether they would persist in loyalty to God out of love and trust. That's incredible. That is, that is incredible. Another passage to consider, Isaiah chapter 14, another one of those crying songs that kind of puts a magnifying glass on the heart of this perfect angel. This is in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Here on the screen it says, how you are fallen from heaven. Again, just kind of reiterating this idea of, oh, this, this angel, the devil did come from heaven. He had another name though. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. It continues. For you have said in your heart, again, just kind of getting an idea of what was going on in Lucifer's heart and mind, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you hear what's going on in this perfect angel's heart? when iniquity was found in it? The problem was he had an eye problem. <laughs> I will ascend to the, the heights. I will do this. I will do that. I will be like the Most High. He was focused on being greater than God himself. That's crazy, right? Like the Most High. He, he, I mean, he actually wanted to be like God, not in character necessarily, but in power and authority. He wanted the worship that belonged to God alone. And so there in your handout, let's fill this in. At the very heart of this angel named Lucifer was a desire to receive the worship, a desire to receive the worship 
that is only due to God. And this is really, this is really insightful here. This self-centered, self-exalting desire is the very essence of sin itself. Okay? This self-exalting desire, this self-centered desire is actually the essence of sin itself. I remember being a freshman theology student at the college I went to in California. I sat in this lecture. I was about to listen to a theologian that I had read some books from before, and I was so excited. And he gets up to speak. Very first line is proposition number one. Sin is love. <laughs> and here I am, thinking, I'm, 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 I'm like taking notes. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. Could you say that again? And he said it again. <laughs> Sin is love. And he went on to explain that sin is love misplaced. In other words, love of self over love of God. And this was Lucifer's problem. In the heart of this perfect angel, the rebellion against God began. And that picture that we see in Revelation 12, verse 7, is not a war of, of uh, you know, lightsabers and things like that. It's a war of loyalties and allegiance. Who will I worship? And in fact, when you read through Revelation 12, you find that angels, other angels there, actually followed along with Lucifer's plan. A third of the entire population of angels followed this idea of, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the best way to go, putting self above God. This rebellion not only spread amongst heavenly angels, but also amongst the human family, sadly enough. And so let's go back to that story. This is, again, this is all going to help us understand where suffering and pain really originated. Let's go back now to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 this time, all right, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 gives us an idea, you know, after God created the, the, the good, good, very good world, Genesis chapter 3 introduces kind of the, the sour note to humanity's experience. When you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Let me just read verses 1 through 6 here. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, I know I just kind of read through that quickly here. But here we've got the Garden of Eden. It's really a paradise. It's, it's, actually, the word Eden means pleasure. God set this up to be the most pleasing experience possible for humanity. And there in this garden, Satan, remember in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we found that, that another name for Satan was uh, that serpent of old. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 3. Satan actually appears here in the Garden of Eden, and this serpent speaks to the woman. Okay? This woman doesn't have a name yet. The name Eve that we know of, it actually comes later on in chapter 3. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent. I don't know how many of us would actually talk back to a snake that was talking to us. <laughs> but here, Eve, uh, she, she kind of follows this along. And according to verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. This was some instruction that God gave to Adam and Eve in chapter 2. Hey, you've got this whole garden of Eden, this garden of pleasure. All of it is yours. There's one tree. I just want you to stay away from it. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave them an opportunity to say no. God gave them an opportunity to choose a different way than he had prescribed to them. And when the serpent talks to them, he doesn't say, hey, wait, wait, wait. Did God say you, did God say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? That." That was like totally turning upside down the instructions that God had given. Right? Hey, all of, it's, all of it's yours, except this one. And Satan says, hey, you can't, you can't touch any of this? <laughs> and then the conversation continues in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Whoa, total contradiction now to what God had said. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what are the next two words? Like God. Does that sound a little bit like Isaiah chapter 14? Yeah. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. Ugh, some of the most saddening lines of all of Scripture. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Ah, <laughs> like every every time I come to this, I'm, I'm, I'm no, don't do it. Ah, <laughs> and it's there, it's there. What ends up happening here is that humanity essentially joins the rebellion that Satan started in heaven. Go ahead and put that in your handout if you haven't already. Humanity parents joined the rebellion that Satan started in heaven. Think of this. Prior to this moment, prior to this whole interchange, Adam and Eve had enjoyed perfect trust in God. They'd enjoyed perfect relational integrity and wholeness. And here, Satan's smooth words insinuate that God cannot be trusted. Right Here, here they are enjoying life with the God who created all things good, they're trusting Him, they know Him, and then these words are introduced into their consciousness. Did God really say this? It's as if Satan's saying, hey, God is trying to hold something back from you that really is for your best interest. And suddenly, kind of the sensation of doubt crosses their hearts and minds, and they're, they're not quite sure what to do with it. You see, the, the fall of humanity, the sin there in the Garden of Eden, was more than just reaching for a forbidden fruit. It was more than just the act of eating something they were not supposed to. Before the act of disobedience was a choice and a conclusion of rebellion. Did you hear me? Before the act of disobedience was a choice of rebellion. Okay? A choice motivated by a desire to exalt self, put self essentially on the throne. If you, know, if you were to imagine a throne in your heart, in the moment before Eve reaches for the fruit, she essentially concludes, you know what, God? I know you've been on this throne, but I'm going to sit there now. 
Do you follow that? That's really the fall. And it was just like Lucifer. And this had an immediate impact on the experience of humanity. Just take a look at the next few verses. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So they're starting to feel shame for the first time. They're starting to feel the sense that I need to cover something for the first time. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is, this is sad. God's probably coming for his evening walk, right? Prior to this, they had enjoyed perfect relationship, perfect trust, relational faithfulness and integrity, and now they're running from him. Oh. In verse 9, the Bible says, And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. First time fear ever crosses the human consciousness. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, uh, the woman... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Here it is, right from the very beginning. The blame game started right there in the garden. It was the woman. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Oh man, this story like none other, demonstrates to us that sin, when we decide to put self on the throne, it changes everything. All the good, good, very good that God had set up is now filled with fear and shame and blame. Brokenness in our relationship with God and brokenness in our relationships with one another. Let's take a look at this. The immediate impact, you, you can fill this in. The choice to love self over God, right? The choice to love self over God was first motivated by a misrepresentation of God's character, right? Those, those smooth words that the serpent said, trying to insinuate that God really didn't have their best interest in mind. A misrepresentation of God's character, and it generated an immediate impact on many levels that continues to shape our reality today. First of which, alienation from God. Right? This is why when God is walking in the cool of the day into the garden, Adam and Eve actually run. They feel like they, they can't be in his presence. The second thing is it resulted in brokenness in human relationships. Right? Adam starts blaming. <laughs> hey, you get her in trouble, not me. Brokenness in human relationships. And finally, an inability to acknowledge our own sin. Right? Adam and Adam and Eve both. They didn't want to take any ownership of what had just taken place. The story of Genesis 3, disheartening as it may be, is one that is very instructive and insightful. Like, uh, I know we, we don't like to read this. We don't like to hear this. It's just so sad. It's not necessarily great bedtime material. <laughs> but it is very instructive. Very insightful. And I want us to pay attention. You can almost see a pathology of sin, if you will. Adam and Eve's fall was more than just eating fruit like we've just said. 
Some have described the terms, or some have described this process, you know, what took place in Adam and Eve's heart in terms of a perceptual fall that led to a relational fall that eventually manifested itself in a moral or behavioral fall. It started here. I mean, I don't know if you've heard this cycle of thoughts yield feelings and feelings yield actions. Have you heard that before? And then actions reinforce the thoughts, okay? So here's what Satan does. There's an interrelation. Satan works by planting thoughts, a misunderstanding or a misapprehension of who God is that result in different feelings toward God, right? That perceptual fall results in a relational fall, a relational tension, and that relationship of distrust then results in a behavioral fall. In other words, our actions, our sins, our deeds and misdeeds, they do not come out of thin air. They don't come from a vacuum. They come from thoughts that lead to feelings that lead to actions. Satan knows this, and it's been his scheme, not just from the Garden of Eden, but throughout history. Okay? He plants unsettling thoughts, falsehood about God's character, that lead to feelings of broken trust and emotional disconnect from God. Actually, not just from God, but from others as well. And all of that results in, in actions that are motivated towards rebellion rather than loyalty towards God. All of that leaves us high and dry. I'm telling you, sin, no matter how attractive it might seem, remember Eve saw that the fruit was good to her eyes and to, able to make one wise, no matter how pleasing it might seem, all of it leaves us high and dry, alienated from God, experiencing broken relationships with one another, and unable to even recognize what started it all. Mm, Satan's a jerk, okay? <laughs> this is what sin does. It destroys us. In fact, you keep reading through Genesis chapter 3, it even destroyed creation itself. It's uh, the, the appearance of thorns and thistles. Um, Adam's work in the garden became difficult. It was full of pain and strife and struggle thereafter. It's really interesting that nature itself uh, in Romans chapter 8, is described as groaning and longing for the restoration of all things. Nature is tired of sin. You look at the environment, I don't know if you remember, it wasn't too long ago, when, when everybody was on lockdown, and everything looked so much more beautiful outside because nobody was driving through you know, the interstates and stuff, and you could start seeing mountains that you couldn't see before and things like that. Creation longs for everything to be restored. Sin's curses of pain and suffering started here in the Garden of Eden with our choice to love self over God. That's where it started. Our choice to love self over God. I mean, you think about this. How much of this week's frustrations alone, okay? Just think about, uh, maybe you don't have to think about it too long. <laughs> think about your frustrations from the week, the heartache that maybe you experienced. How much of that could you have avoided how much of that could have been avoided had those involved chose to love God rather than self? How many arguments would have you been spared? <laughs> How many misunderstandings and grudges would you have let go if you had simply chosen to lay self aside and love God first? Man, just think about that. So much of what we experience in terms of pain and suffering, not just on a relational level, but even on a natural level, is the result of simply loving self over God. 
And so let's ask some questions here. We've got some questions in your handout. Why then, if God anticipated, if he knew that all of this was going to be the result of sin, why didn't he just squelch the rebellion from the very beginning? If he knew the heartache that it was going to cause, if he knew the harm that, that was going to ensue, why would he let it persist? <laughs> it's a good question. And I want to just address it by saying, first of all, that when we're trying to figure out God and understand his behavior, that first, don't even, <laughs> don't even think that you can figure him out. But if you're trying to understand God and where he's coming from, one of the basic operations that he, or, I'm sorry, one of the basic principles from which he operates is love. All right, 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8. 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8, there's a very simple phrase that says, God is love. All right, God is love. Now, I, I flashed this, this picture on the screen here just because it's a very happy day, right? <laughs> this is probably the happiest day of my life. Uh, this was August 21, 2005, and, and we have just been pronounced husband and wife, hallelujah. You've got my brother and sister uh, on, on my, uh, you know, to the right of the screen there cheering us along, and then you've got, you've got Donnie there uh, just kind of like, all right, you better take care of her, big guy, <laughs> right? Now, love is a beautiful thing. When we, when we go to weddings, we celebrate it. It's like, oh, man, this is how, uh, you know, this is how everything should be, the two becoming one. This is, this is what God set up in Genesis chapter 2, actually. And love is a beautiful thing, but love, in order to be love, has to have the ability to choose, right? Has to have the ability to say no. What makes this day so beautiful is that Donnie wasn't behind Debbie saying, hey, you better say I do, right? No, 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 okay? It was that Debbie chose me, and she continues to do so, and that's what makes love, love, right? Go ahead and write that down if you haven't already. God's government is founded upon the principle of love, and in order for love to truly be love, it must have the ability to say no. Again, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I don't want to call you servants. I want to call you friends. He doesn't want to control us. He wants a loyalty that is based on trust, not fear. I mean, can you imagine if God did squelch the rebellion from the very beginning? Like when Lucifer started to feel those sense, that, that sense of self-exaltation and he started talking with the angels, hey, I think God's government of love, you know, putting others above self and stuff, maybe that's not the real thing. Maybe that's something else. Hey, you know, Lucifer's just kind of casually bringing this up, maybe planting seeds that maybe there's another way to do things. And then all of a sudden, there's an announcement. Hey, Lucifer, come, come to my office. <laughs> you know? Angels say, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go hang out with God. And then the very next minute, angels are, hey, where's Lucifer? It's, all, it's time for choir practice. Where, where's the conductor? <laughs> oh, you know, God and him, they, they had a meeting. He took him out back. <laughs> Can you imagine... What the heavenly citizenship would have felt like thereafter? No, it just doesn't work that way. You start drawing conclusions that this God, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll toe the line, but I sure don't want to. No, that's not what God is going for, right? He wants relationship of love and loyalty out of trust and willing, yeah, willing trust, not fear. So in order for love to be genuine, it must allow for freedom. It must allow for freedom. And along with freedom comes the risk, 
that that love will not be received or reciprocated. In order for love to be love, it has to have the ability to say no. And this is why God did not squelch the rebellion from the beginning. Think back to Matthew chapter 13 when we were looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember the angels or the reapers, they said, okay, if an enemy did this, well, do you just want us to go and gather up all the tares now? And then what was the wisdom of the farmer? He said, not yet. Unless you actually tear, or bring up the wheat along with the tares. Wait until the harvest, which according to his explanation was the end of the world. In other words, God says, hey, wait, there needs to be time to allow for things to manifest themselves. I don't know how many of you have planted a new, a new lawn, but every now and then weeds will start growing up, but you don't actually know it until it flowers, right? If you pull that, or if you try to pull something up before, you know, before that time, you end up pulling up the good stuff along with it. And this is God's wisdom. He says, no, we need time to let these things demonstrate themselves so that when it's clear, then people can choose yes or no, willingly, not out of fear, but out of trust. All right? So this is why God didn't squelch the rebellion from the beginning. All right, let's, let's speed this up here. Another question, another question that who is responsible then? As the parable of the wheat and tares, you're in your handout. As the parable of the wheat and tares illustrates, God is not responsible for the presence of sin and suffering in the world. The seeds of sin and selfishness were planted by Satan. Go ahead and write that one in. Planted by Satan. And the ruinous results of pain and sorrow are the pitiful fruits of rebellion. <clears throat> The pitiful fruits of rebellion. You could say uh, the pitiful fruits of sin, the pitiful fruits of selfishness, both Satan's and humanity's. On the next page, will the rebellion persist indefinitely? Okay, this is another question. Okay, so uh, we know that God's not responsible, but how long is this going to last? Is this going to be how things are forever and ever? If you were here last night, you know that no, God's kingdom is coming. Praise the Lord. Okay. Will the rebellion persist indefinitely? No, the answer is no. Yes, you know, I'm, here, uh, let me say it like this. You know, some struggle with the idea of a God of love uh, allowing for suffering. But then if he gives freedom for people to make choices, some then turn around and struggle with the idea of God actually stepping in to halt evil. Oh, man, why, why would God do that to people, you know? Why would God uh, actually um, command for certain people or for certain groups in the Old Testament to actually be, you know, exterminated? You know, we, 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 we kind of put God in a lose-lose situation. I shouldn't say we. Satan puts God in a lose-lose situation. We say, oh man, if God is so loving, why should he allow suffering? And then when God tries to stop suffering, oh, wow, he's so mean. <laughs> do you follow that? There's an irony to that. Satan puts God in a lose-lose situation, imposing his own characteristics of force and coercion on God. You know, it's nice to know, yes, that God is a gentleman, that he's going to allow us to say no, but is he a victor? Will he actually overcome evil? The answer is yes. Go with me to a couple of passages. Uh, Luke chapter 11, this is page 1350. Luke chapter 11, page 1350. Page 1350 in your seminar Bible. Luke chapter 11, and starting in verse 21. Uh, 
Uh, you know, in the flow of this conversation, he has actually cast out a demon from a demon-possessed person. And uh, people are actually accusing Jesus, hey, this is not a miracle from God. This is actually Satan just trying to manifest himself through this demon-possessed man. And, and Jesus is, is casting this demon out by Satan's power himself. But he clarifies, no, 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 not at all. There is a battle between good and evil. Evil isn't going to fight against its own. And in verse 21, he kind of draws up this metaphor. He says this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. It's kind of a strange metaphor, but what Jesus is saying is, hey, look, Satan's a strong guy, and he's got things set up in such a way that he's guarding his palace. But when a stronger than he comes, he's, you know, basically saying, I'm, I'm greater than the enemy. I'm greater than the devil. When the stronger than he comes, he binds him and takes what is his own. <laughs> Jesus is essentially saying, yes, evil persists, and it seems like a guarded palace. But you know what? I'm here to take back my own. Oh, them fighting words, right? That, that, that's what Jesus is saying. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John the Beloved, you know, the one who talks about love and things like that, he takes on this fighting tone against evil. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Praise God. Yes, Jesus is a gentleman, but he knows when evil needs to be dealt with, and he knows how to deal with it too. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in this world. In your handout, you can write this in. Jesus declared himself to be the one stronger than the enemy, who had come to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, that his victory can actually be our victory. Praise the Lord. God is not just sitting on his hands, looking at us in our pain and suffering, saying, well, Good luck, guys. Hope you guys figure it out. <laughs> no! Jesus came to undo all the curses that sin and Satan introduced into our experience. Praise God. In Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter, oh man, we need to move quickly here. I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 12, let's go there. <clears throat> Last book of the Bible, page 1675, I think. Page 1675 in your seminar Bible. It's beautiful because Jesus is not just greater than the enemy, but he makes this victory available to each and every one of us who put our trust in him. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. <clears throat> when you're there, say, I'm there. I'm there. Oh, this is so powerful. Again, if you're wanting to understand Revelation 12, we'll, we'll get to this in depth later on. But for now, know this. Then I heard a loud voice, this is verse 10, saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, another kind of idiom referring to Satan, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Verse 11, And they, speaking of the human race who put their trust in him, they overcame him, they overcame the dragon by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Whew. Victory over Satan is not just in the hands of Jesus, but Jesus has given that to those who put their trust in him. They overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of the testimony. In other words, by the historical fact that Jesus died on the cross and by our personal experience of having received the merits of Jesus Christ. Mm. So write that in. Those who overcome the devil gain victory by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So, final question there. So, will God ever do something to eliminate evil? Let me answer that in three ways. First of all, He already has. Okay? He already has. Jesus did come, and He came to destroy the works of the devil. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, notice exactly how he did this. All the evil, all the sin, all the sorrow, all the suffering. In Isaiah chapter 53, this is how our Savior saves us. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Doesn't seem like a victory at all. But notice this. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And this is so deep. <laughs> I mean, just that word peace, the word in Hebrew is shalom. It means everything's whole, nothing's broken, nothing's missing. In our pain and sorrow and suffering as a result of sin and all of its curses, there is so much that is broken. There is so much that is missing. And Jesus, for our peace, suffered on Calvary's cross so that nothing would be missing so that all that was broken could be mended. And by his stripes, you and I are healed. How many of you need that tonight? Amen? Yeah. So, will God ever do something? First answer to that, he already has, okay? Second answer to that is, he always does do something. He always does do something to eliminate evil. I love this passage. This is also in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 63, the Bible says that in all their affliction, this is now speaking, kind of rehearsing the history of the children of Israel. It says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Man, what pains us the most in our seasons of suffering, I don't know if you resonate this with this, it's, it's when we feel like we're, we're the only ones in it. Like I'm all alone in this. Nobody else gets it. I'm not just cut off from God, but I feel cut off from everyone else around us. But I want you to hear what God is saying here. In your affliction, you are not alone. That he himself was afflicted in that. Every pain, every tear, every sorrow that you've gone through, that has pained the heart of God as well. And his assurance to us in those moments, in those seasons of trial and affliction is, hey, I'm carrying you. Whether you feel it or not, I am right there with you. Amen. Will God ever do something to eliminate evil? Well, he, he already has and he always does do something. He's carrying us through every one of those seasons. Another passage here at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, to the farthest reaches, all the way across the finish line, those who come to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. You wonder what Jesus is up to in heaven? You know, after he uh, died and was buried and was resurrected and then ascended to heaven, what's Jesus up to? Is he just like, you know, the heavenly carpenter just building my room and his room and her, you know, what's he doing? He lives to make intercession for us. 
You see, Jesus isn't just the lamb who already did something about evil. He is also the high priest who constantly is doing something about evil so that you and I can be saved to the uttermost. Yes! Okay? Last answer to this question. Will God ever do something? He already has. He always does. And he absolutely will. He absolutely will. Finally, at the end of time, notice this, Revelation chapter 20. Verse 10, kind of describing really how things wrap up. It says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay? That the enemy himself does have an end. Okay? Maybe you've had this conception of hell as being something that is, is burning throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity and it is controlled by Satan. I want to tell you, Revelation 12, 20 verse 10, the devil himself will have an end. The one who started it all will be brought to his end. Praise God. In fact, oh man, Nahum chapter 1 verse 9, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. There's no chance for it to. Oh man, we need to see this. Go to Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. So beautiful. This is on the heels of chapter 20 where the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 21, when you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right. Revelation 21, the Bible says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You read that and you're thinking, how could that possibly be? Is this, pine, is this wish, wishful thinking? Notice in verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, and he said to me, hey, John, write these things down, for these words are true and what else? And faithful. True and faithful. Man, there's a depth to that that resonates with our deepest longings, right? We all want something that we can trust. We all want someone that we can trust. We all want him to be faithful to us. And for the God for, for God to be the one that we can trust through and through. And this promise of an earth made new, of a universe totally free from pain, free from sorrow, and all of sin's curses, that is true and faithful. He's not making it up. God will make an utter end. It will not rise up again. Why? Because God will make all things new. And right now, we are living before that time, right? Now, yes, we do have victory over evil. We do have freedom in Jesus, yet it's not yet fully fulfilled, right? It's not yet fully realized. The victory of Jesus is ours now, but it has not yet been fully realized. So what, how do we handle ourselves until then? Until then, last part of your handout, I would just simply submit 
But we can choose to trust God. We can choose to stand on His in this cosmic conflict. And in doing so, we can find peace and strength in the midst of life's sorrows and struggles. We can rest assured of God's promised presence. You know, sometimes we, we think to ourselves, man, is, really God, is God really going to pull through? <laughs> Does he really carry me through to the end? And I love this promise in Isaiah chapter 41. Jesus himself declaring through the prophet Isaiah says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Praise the Lord. And then in verse 13, the Bible says, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not. I will help you. You know, the thing about suffering and sorrow is we start to wonder, does God really have my back? And God's assurance to us tonight, I don't know if you're going through one of those seasons right now where you're wondering, did God just, like, do all of my emails just go to the spam folder or what? You know? Does, does he see me? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've got you. I'm not letting go. I've got you and I will strengthen you. Tonight, I want to invite our, our uh, table host to pass out those response cards again. Give you a chance to respond to this simple message tonight. Three simple options there you can uh, fill out. If this message was clear, go ahead and check that, that box. If it was a blessing to you, go ahead and check that. If you have uh, questions about what was shared tonight, maybe some of the verses weren't quite clear, or maybe the train of thought as far as where evil came from and how, how do we navigate a life full of suffering and sorrow even now, go ahead and, and ask those questions on the back of your card. We'll try to address that in meetings to come. And then if there's something to pray for, go ahead and, and share that with us as well. As you're filling that out, I've asked, I've asked Debbie to share a song with us, and then we'll close out with a word of prayer. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am alone. Through the storm. my hand precious Lord lead me home when my way grows drear precious Lord linger near when my light is on Take my hand, precious Lord.
precious Lord, lead me home. How many of you tonight want to say, yes, Lord, please take my hand, take my hand, yeah. I'm telling you, God is telling us tonight, I will not let you go. You may be waging some wars right now. The battle may be raging heavily in your own hearts and in different ways, emotionally, relationally, financially. Jesus is taking your hand tonight. He's not going to let go. So don't you let go either, okay? Maybe you're battling sin, overwhelmed by its heavy burden, feeling uh, guilt and shame and sorrow. I tell you, look to Jesus on the cross. You might be fighting wars, uh, a life of painful struggles. But Jesus is interceding for us in heaven right now because he wants to get us across the finish line, to save us to the uttermost. Maybe you're fighting a battle of, of uncertainties. You're trying to make decisions about things. Hey, look to Jesus because your future is already secure. He's coming in the clouds soon someday. Yeah. Tonight, I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I want to have a special prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you are the God who isn't just sitting idly by waiting for us to navigate this life of hurt and heartache. You're the God who has done something for us. I mean, even in Revelation 13, it says you were the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You already made provision for us even before we knew we needed it. God, you are even now interceding for us granting us power from on high to navigate life's challenges. You are carrying us, bearing us, in, even into our old age. Lord, thank you so much for the blessed hope that you will make all things new. God, we just want to say thank you. We want to receive the assurance that you've given us here tonight. And right now, I just want to you know, if there is a, a special struggle that you just want to surrender to God, you want to trust that he is holding your hand, uh, just with, with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, would you just signify this, your, your desire to surrender that struggle by, by just raising your hand and just saying, Lord, I'm reaching for your hand because I know you're reaching for mine. You've got a struggle. You've got someone on your heart. You're bearing a burden of grief. You're mourning something. There is a sin that holds you back, an addiction that has been so destructive. Go ahead. I'm not even looking. But God's eyes see this. You're reaching towards heaven tonight. And so, God, I pray that you would grant victory in Jesus. That as Romans chapter 16 says, that, that you, will, you are the God of peace who will soon crush Satan under our feet. Lord, give us victory. Cause us to be more than conquerors, just as you promised. Give us the assurance that nothing can separate us from your love tonight. God, we are reaching for your hand. Thank you so much for reaching for ours. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, amen and amen. Thank you, friends, for spending your Saturday night with us. We'll look forward to hanging out together tomorrow night where we'll talk about prophecy's greatest promise. All right, God bless you. Have a good evening.